uh, in Revelation, and in, in, in fact, throughout the whole Bible, we, the way that the scriptures describe things are in a very cyclical manner. And what I mean by that is it often repeats the same story, but often from a different perspective. We've seen that throughout Revelation where it'll describe a scene and then it'll step over at this side and describe the same scene. And then it may go over here and describe the scene again. And it, it's very hard to see it because there's a lot of symbolism in there, but it really is describing a lot of the same thing. Um, yesterday, uh, I was excited because a college football season has started. And there's a lot of things to love about college football. The one thing that just drives me nuts, but it, I, I understand it's a necessity, is that sometimes the officials make a mistake. They get things wrong. Or maybe there's a question. One coach thinks, oh, yeah, they made the right call. And the other coach is going berserk and saying, you absolutely did not see. You didn't have the right perspective. You saw it. You made the wrong call. And so what they've done in football to try to correct this is they've come up with this thing called instant replay. Now, if you've watched a football game, you know how this works. There's a fumble. There's a certain a man stepped out of bounds, maybe. And there's this questionable call. And so it goes to instant replay. And the referee runs over to the booth, and everybody at home and everybody in the stadium is watching the replay. Now, the interesting thing about the replay is we're so technolo it's technologically advanced now that it's not just one camera shot at the play that's in question, right? We have so many cameras that litter these fields now that not only can you see it from different angles and different levels from all over the field, but you can see it at different speeds. They will include sound. They will zoom in. But it's all the exact same play at the heart of the matter, right? It's just that it's being seen from a different perspective. I was watching a game yesterday. There was a perspective where the question was, did the guy touch the ball or not with his toe? I mean, it was such a little thing. And at the first, when you saw it in full speed, it's like, he absolutely touched it. And then they showed this one, this one shot. And as you looked at that shot, you're like, yeah, that sure looks like he may have touched it. It might have been there. But then they zoomed around to this other angle, and they came in from a different perspective. And from that perspective, combined with this perspective and the timing and everything, what you realized was he hadn't touched it at all. And what was occurring was you were getting all these different views to make sure that you came to the truth of the same play, of the same kind of story that was right there in the football game. And so I bring that up to say that as we look at what Jesus has said, this is how things will work. In Revelation, we're seeing it from different perspectives, different time, different speeds, different focuses, different ways. And I believe that as we come to chapter 20, what he's doing is giving us another view of everything that we've been talking about. And all that scripture says, he's just showing it from a different view, a different perspective. And it's helping us to gain uh, a preciseness about it, a love for Jesus and all that he's done, the, the intricacies and all that's happening behind the scenes spiritually. And so that's my preface to this is that we're getting another picture of something that we've already seen. We've seen throughout Revelation that, that Jesus came and died, that he rose again, all this to save people. He's now ascended to the Father, but that there's one day when he's coming back. The scripture says that is the great day of Christ, the day of the Lord. It was talked about in the Old Testament. It's talked about in the New Testament, and it's called the day. There's one day when he's coming back, and on that day he will rescue his people that he's saved with his blood, from that cross. And he will also bring the wrath of God Amen. that they did not claim. He'll bring the wrath of God upon his enemies. That'll happen Amen. on one day. Amen. Now, I bring that up because that has been the story. That has been the perspective from every instant replay that we've been seeing. And I don't think it changes on today's replay. The issue at hand is that there is a stream of theology 
about today's passage, which has been made into major motion pictures, has been put out by Christian books and popular book series. Uh, Publishers have oriented themselves behind a certain theology, which has caused people to believe something about this passage, which I don't believe is consistent with all the replays of Scripture. And what we're talking about here is something that you may have heard before. It's called the millennium. Have you heard of the millennium? So there's this talk of the millennium and this thousand-year period where some people believe Jesus Christ will come back and then we'll start this thousand-year period where Jesus will have an earthly kingdom reign where everything is perfect. And then after that thousand years, it's like he has to come back again, like a third time, a third return of Christ, another advent. But that's not how we've consistently seen the scriptures. Now, I know that people who believe in the millennium, I believe that they are Christians. I believe that they want to hear the truth uh, from scripture. Um, It's just hard sometimes when you grasp it. And then sometimes you look at a passage and it's not fully maybe dissected or something to really kind of see it. And I, I just want to provide the perspective that I see it in accordance with everything and put it out there. Um, there are great scholars on both sides, so I don't think you can really mount up, well, so-and-so believes this, and so-and-so believes this, or even Jason believes this, or this pastor believes that, or I don't think it's that. I think it's we read the scripture and say, we think it's this, and we leave it at that, and Jesus is going to reveal really what that truth is when it happens in real time, because we're not having instant replay. It's still to come, so it's hard to really imagine that, and Jesus will make it known, but this is how I see it. So that's all the preference into chapter 20. That's all I'm going to give, but I'm going to kind of try to give the perspective now of the millennium, or what I would call all millennial, uh, and I'll describe what that is in just a second. So let's go to chapter 20, verse 1. It says, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, uh, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. That is, there are description, and you might say, well, uh, Jason, that just described this thousand years. My understanding of this is that the thousand years is not talking of a thousand years future. It is symbolically talking about this current period of time that we are living in. So the question is, well, how does a 1,000 years equal what's already been 2,000 years of Jesus having resurrected and returned to the Father? Well, if, if, if you're not going to believe in that future 1,000 years, how can you have the 1,000 years now? And part of the reason is this. The word that's used for 1,000 in this passage in the Greek is not a singular word. The word for 1,000 here is a plural word, meaning thousands of years. Um, and I don't know how to explain that and how it got translated this way to say thousand years, uh, other than if people already had a bias towards we need it to be a millennium, and so we're going to translate it to be a millennium. Um, and so that's where I'm like, I, I see where there's this, this place where we've already seen the pattern, and now this doesn't have to be thousand year. The word is thousands of years. Uh, that's what is in uh, the Greek as it goes there. So there's all this other stuff. Well, what's happening of Satan? And isn't Satan around and active? And, and it says here that he's going to be chained. Well, let me break that down a little bit. When it talks about Satan coming and being bound by this chain and throwing to an abyss, what's happening here is that Satan is being restrained. He's being held back from the ability to do everything that he wants to do. Amen. What is this chain and what is this bottomless pit? In some of your translations, it will call it the abyss. 
the greatest thing that can hold Satan back from accomplishing what his evil deeds are is the same thing that keeps you from accomplishing the evil deeds and being deceived like you want to be, and that is the gospel itself. When Jesus Christ died on that cross and he shed his blood under the wrath of God for your sin and mine, that was everything that was needed to have victory for you over sin and to be forgiven, but also to have victory over Satan. We're told in the scriptures that by that cross, he had absolute victory and triumphed over his enemies. That is the chain that binds Satan and restrains him from being able to completely deceive. Now, isn't he the deceiver? Yes. Scripture says that he is a liar. He is a deceiver. He's an accuser. He's wicked. He's awful. He's a beast. He's a serpent. He is the devil. He's an adversary. Absolutely. So is he not deceiving now? Now, I want to throw this into the context of this passage where later on the description of deceiving the nations isn't that he's not going about deceiving people right now, but he's being restrained from taking the opportunity of deceiving all the nations into one big war against Jesus. I think he's being restrained from absolutely taking all evil into his power and having that final war. Why? Because God is holding back. He's timing it out according to his timing. We're not playing according to the devil's schedule. We're playing according to God's timeline. That's one of the things I hear most of all when we're in Bible study, like in Mark, and we've been reading through prophecies and Jesus fulfills it. Time after time, we'll ask the question, well, what is God revealing about himself in the passage? And over and over and over, people say, it's just amazing that God does things according to his timing. That is true with the end as well. If he wanted to be a thousand years, it would have been a thousand years. If he wanted to be thousands of years, it will be thousands of years. But Satan doesn't get to determine when that happens. It's said there that he will be released at a time to come. And then later on, we'll see in this passage that he does go to round up all the nations to wage war together against the Lamb. And so that's how I see this as being currently the thousand years symbolic, is that it's thousands of years whereby now Satan is being restrained from the opportunity of deceiving all the nations into an all-out war against Jesus. That's what's going on in this first passage there. Verse 4 goes on and says, Then I saw thrones. Wait, let me just say something for a moment. I do believe as well in the gospel that Satan is currently also being restrained in fully deceiving you to do everything that you want to do. And by saying that, there is also this little appendix in that we cannot blame Satan for everything. All too often we use him as our excuse when we have sinned. It wasn't my fault, said Eve. It was the serpent, Jesus, that you made. He made me to eat the fruit. And I hear all too often off of our lips... When we have done sin of some kind, and take your sin, whatever that is, whatever you've done against God or somebody else, whatever that is, but all too often in the Christian church, we'll say, I have sinned and Satan made me do it. He has been strong against me. It's all Satan. But here's the problem. Page after page after page in the Bible, you do not see Jesus saying, it's all Satan. It's all Satan. In fact, it's the opposite way. When Jesus says, because of sin, it's not because of Satan. It's because of you. It's because of Jason. Let me read a quick passage that comes out of James chapter 1. And this is uh, truly um, just a hard thing to to kind of swallow because this is about us. It says this about temptation. And we know that he's the great tempter. He's the deceiver. I'm not saying that he doesn't 
towards us. I'm just saying that we can't blame him for everything. In fact, the majority of it, we can't. Uh, maybe he's got his minions helping, but this is what James chapter 1 says. It says, But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Let me read that again. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. It didn't say Satan. It didn't say demons. It didn't say anybody else that you want to blame. It is your desire. It is my desire. We are lured into that because we want to. And that is hard to take. That I wanted to do that. I can't blame anybody. And page after page after page of Scripture blames you and me. Not Satan. Not the guy down the road. Not somebody. Not the bad news. Not the Democratic Party. Not the Republican Party. Not ISIS. Not Hitler. There's nobody else to blame for your sin and what might cause you to be eternally separated from Jesus except for you. And it says here that each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it conceives, gives birth to sin. You are lured away. And when you are tempted by that, it is you that then choose to go on and conceive into sin. And then it says, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. And let me tell you, sin brings death you may think i got away with it nobody knows you may think i sinned and nobody's died yet but let me tell you it will cause death not only spiritually between you and god it will cause death not only in what will come in the future it'll cause death in your relationships it'll cause death with your employment it will cause death in the way you just view things it'll completely begin to kill you and you were deceiving yourself satan's not deceiving you And so I know I just jumped off a tangent, but I had to say that because we way too quickly blame Satan for all of our problems. Is he active? Yes. Are we in a battle against not flesh and blood, but other principalities and authorities in the heavenlies? Yes. But when it comes to sin, we have one to blame and one only, and that's ourselves. When tempted, you are lured away and enticed by your own desires. When that's conceived, when you give into that, you know, being tempted is not a sin. It's when you give in to that. When you sin, that's the road towards death. And you can't blame Satan for that. It's us. It's all on us. All right, back to Revelation. Revelation chapter 20, verse 4, goes on and says this. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those whom uh, the authority to judge was committed, also the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus, And for the word of God and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or in their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. So then the question is, if this if this is the thousand year period, if this is the thousands of years that he's talking about, but it's talking about how believers how Christians who have not submitted to Satan, that they are currently reigning with Jesus. Is that what we're doing as believers? If we're in Christ, it says that we are basically like on thrones reigning now in Christ. Do you feel like you're reigning in Christ? If you are in Christ, the reality is you are. You are. You were actually given a part of his throne. Early in Revelation, we said to the, he said, to the one who overcomes, I grant the opportunity for you to come and sit with me on my throne. 
But we know that in Scripture, that is not just something future, but currently we are given the opportunity to reign. One of the first commandments that God gave to Adam and Eve was, have dominion over creation, rule over the creation. I want you to steward it. I want you to take care of it. That's what he's talking about. We have these passages. I want to read a couple uh, here first out of Romans. This is out of chapter 8. I love this because we just got done reading this on our Wednesday, uh, Wednesday Bible study. Verses 10 and 11 in Romans chapter 8 says this. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. The spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. Uh, excuse me. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So some groundwork here is that when you come to Christ, you are no longer dead, but the scripture already says that you have already been resurrected, that you are living life now, that resurrection for you, there's a second resurrection that's coming when your body is given into that new body that he gives you, whether you're coming out of the ground and he gives you that new body or this one as we're traveling, he transforms as we're told in the twinkling of an eye. That resurrection is coming, but if you have the spirit of God living in you right now, you are to be alive now. The scripture, and we'll find this in Revelation 20, that if you have come to Christ, you are not living in death, but you are now living alive with Jesus. You are living, you are to be alive. You're no longer part of the walking dead, the rest of humanity who thinks they're alive, who can breathe and eat the crops and they can, they can see with their eyes and they can go to football games and they can do all that. They're actually walking dead, just waiting. They're, they're terminal. But if you have Christ, you are alive and he is giving life to your mortal bodies. That's why it's changing you into being people who are depressed and into being people who have joy. That's why it's changing you from people who just want to get revenge into people who want to give forgiveness. It's changing you into people who want to not just live for your own desires and for the world, but you want to be kingdom people. And so now it translates. That's our basis for that. When you reign with Christ... You want to steward what he gives you. You want to take care of your wife. You want to take care of your job. You want to take care of your crops. Why? Because now that you are a kingdom dweller, you're in the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God is shooting right through you, and now you are the beacon of light. And the way that you steward and live life and treat people and go about your business, that's how you're reigning. Are you reigning the way you should? Ephesians makes this more clear in that now that we are with Christ, we're actually reigning with him, that we are, there's, this, there's this opportunity for us to be uh, in that place. It says in um, Ephesians chapter 2, I'm going to start in verse 4, it says this, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love which he loved us. And so let me just get this straight. All this is because of him and his mercy. It's nothing that we've done. We did not earn a place on a throne. We did not earn a place to judge. We have not earned anything that we've been given. It is all Jesus by his mercy, by his grace. He has given it to us. So that's what he's saying. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love which he loved, uh, with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive. Again, that's the resurrection, the first resurrection. Made us alive together with Christ by grace, you have been saved. So again, that's all Jesus. He's made you alive. That's what we just established in Romans. And now here's the place where he has already given us a place of 
kingdom reign. It says in verse 6, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. And it goes on later to say, so he's already given us things to do, work to give us, that it might be honorable to him. If you were in Christ, you have not only been raised in the first resurrection, but now you are to live a kingdom life. And that means you're already reigning with him. This says that we are seated. He's raised us up and seated with him in the heavenly places. Did you notice the tense of the verbs? He didn't say he will raise you up and will seat you in the heavenly place. He said he has raised you up and he has seated you. You already have that place. And so in Revelation chapter 20, he is saying you're kingdom people. You're a royal priesthood, it says in First uh, Peter. And so now again, we go back to Revelation chapter 20. And so they came to life and reigned with Christ for thousands of years. That's how I translate that. That in this current time, as we come to life in Christ through his spirit, we are now not only people of Christ, but we are to steward in Christ. We're to take what he has and live out the kingdom. Verse five, it says the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years or thousands of years were ended. This is the first resurrection. He's talking again about this that has occurred in our hearts that we have been raised up with Christ already. We're living alive right now. Verse six, blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. So if you are with Christ, if you have said, Lord, forgive me, and he has forgiven your sin and done that miracle of regeneration and renewal in your heart, that's what he's done by his mercy and grace. Guess what? Blessed are you. That's what he said. He said, blessed and holy are you because you have already shared in the first resurrection. You've been brought out of death and you are now living in life. Blessed are you, praise God Almighty. Hallelujah, the Lord reigns. Because that's what you have right now, and it is special. Don't think that it's not. You're not more special than anybody else in this world because of anything that you have done, but you are a special person in Christ. You're blessed because of what he's done. And he goes on in verse 6 and says, Over such, that means over people who have Christ, who are sharing in this now life in Christ, over such the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God, and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years or for thousands of years. And so right now it is speaking of we have that and he's coming back for you. He's coming back for you and you will not share in the second death. You will share in the second resurrection, the second resurrection that is yours. And so now it goes in and continues on what we've been saying in this pattern that Jesus Christ is coming back once. He's not coming back a second time. He's coming back one more time. And it says this in verse 7, And when the thousands of years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. So I'm just going to stop right there because it's like, scratch the head. Who are Gog and Magog? Like, what is that? That's kind of a weird phrase. It's, but what I love about that is, as kind of confusing as that is, what it's actually talking about are chapters back, way back in the book of Ezekiel, hundreds of years before Jesus, where there was a prophecy against the ruler 
ruler named Magog and his territory, or excuse me, Gog and his territory that was called Magog. And the problem with Gog and Magog was that he wanted to go and get all the people together and go against God's people. He was gathering all the nations to try to get them to go against Israel. But not only is a prophecy occurring against Gog and his land of Magog in Ezekiel, but now it's tied in to a double prophecy that is going to occur at the end of time, where in that area there will be a man, the Antichrist, who comes together and by Satan, who has then been released by the restraining gospel of Jesus Christ, to go out and deceive the nations and round them up and say, hey, we're going to do this. Together, we have the opportunity to go against God, go against the Lamb, and we will defeat him. So Gog, the Antichrist, and his kingdom gathers together the nations, and they will come together against Jesus Christ. And that picture is the one that we've been talking about that occurs all throughout Scripture, that there is one time coming at the end when all the nations will come in a concerted effort against Jesus, against the Lamb, over there in the Middle East. The area where Gog Magog, Magog was was kind of the Turkey, lower kind of southern Turkey area right now. So that's a place to watch. I don't know how much of that ties in territory exactly, but it is something to be aware of. And so I love that God was already prophesying hundreds of years before Jesus that at the end of time, this was going to happen. It's the pattern that we've seen. This is the, what we are seeing now in chapter 20, that at the end of these thousands of years, there will be this final battle they will gather up and there's going to be all these armies collected together as one army against Jesus. They surround the, uh, the city, the people of God, but God sends fire down from heaven and consumes them. He, we've seen over and over that this isn't going to be much of a battle. It's, it's, it's a lopsided battle because Satan and Jesus are not equals. Some people have wrongly throughout time given Jesus the form of almost being Satan's brother. Like they somehow have completely equal status. One is good and one is evil. Uh, you know, sometimes people want to equate this with Eastern mysticism where there's, where's the yin-yang, uh, that there's complete opposites, good and evil. It's not true with Jesus. He is absolute God and Satan is absolute creature. God is completely infinite and Satan is finite. Jesus is... God Almighty, and Satan is this little piddly guy compared to Jesus. He's strong compared to us, but to Jesus, it's not a fight. Amen. Jesus will go and deliver that final blow, which has already been secured by his death on the cross. It's just now he's going to take his breath and flick him into hell. That's what's happening. And it says that fire will come down. It's not going to be a battle. If Jesus, by his word, this fire is just boom, it's done. It's just going to be momentary. Boom. Like we saw last week. And it's even talked about in the Old Testament. But God will call out to the birds and say, get ready, I'm about to feed you with the flesh of people who are at war against me. And so here we see that this fire comes down from heaven and consumes these armies. And it says here in verse 10, and we'll end with this, the devil who had deceived them, was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast, which is the system of Satan, and the false prophet, who is the Antichrist, they were, and they will be tormented day and night, forever and ever. And so that final scene is Satan 
and his system, his kingdom, and the Antichrist, they've all been thrown into hell where it says that they will be tormented forever and ever. And I want to bring up this verse for a particular reason, and that is because um, in the Advent Christian denomination, there is the doctrinal teaching that God cannot torment somebody for forever. And I just want to say personally that I struggle with that because of that verse. That's the one that I, causes me to struggle because it says for sure that the Antichrist is tormented day and night for forever. So that's why I'm just saying it's not impossible to me, that point. And I just wanted to say that to leave that out there. <laughs> that's all I'm going to say on it today, that that verse just causes me to pause with that article in, in the Advent Christian uh, doctrinal statement. And I have great friends who believe this way, and I have great friends that believe that way, and it's not a stumbling block to me either way, but to say that verse right there just causes me to, to pause and, and, and wonder. We have this scene. We have seen the scene over and over and over. We've seen it from this perspective. We have seen it from this perspective, all different perspectives, and I know some of this, you might be going, man, this is mind-numbingly boring, okay? Uh, that, that may be coming most of all from my family today, uh, Dad, you're overwhelmingly boring today. Um, that's because this has been such a, a fought-over piece of Scripture um, that I wanted to state what I believe is consistent with the pattern that we've seen and what I believe will be and what is currently. And this is what the gospel message says, that Jesus, who loves you, and His Father who loved the world so much, sent His one and only Son so that whosoever believes in Him would not perish, but have eternal life. Right? You know that verse. For God so loves the world that He sent His one and only Son that whosoever believes in Him would not perish, would not join Satan, his system, and the Antichrist in that lake of fire. God so loved you that his entire plan was that he would send Jesus Christ, God Almighty, in the flesh and have him died and crucified on that cross so that if you, in the moment of being called by God's mercy and his grace and his truth, that strong gospel is the only power that can save you. In that moment, if you are drawn by that gospel, if you confess your sins and call upon him, that you might be saved from everlasting perish, Amen. everlasting death. But it says that instead of that, because He loved you and did that and gave His Son, that you would have everlasting life. What I love about that is in this Scripture, we're finding out that everlasting life isn't something future. It's not a day that comes when Jesus comes back and here he is, appears and has this great resurrection and then goes. What today told us was the first resurrection is you is that moment you come and say, look what Jesus did for me because he loves me. I'm so sorry for my sins. And that moment he saves you. It's called justification. He declares you free. He says, you are now no longer part of the kingdom of saying, you are a part of my kingdom. And I have just resurrected you. I have brought you to life by my spirit. Welcome to the family. Welcome to my kingdom. And now what he asks of you 
is that you live like a kingdom dweller. If the Spirit has resurrected you and He's brought you into life, then He's going to be working on you. And He's going to be taking you away from temptation when you are sitting there and you want to be lured and enticed because the gospel of Jesus is working in you. He's going to go, He's going to do everything He can to keep you from the things that want to kill you. Not only future, but now. And so because you've already been resurrected, He's going to be helping you to try to keep you from that, your own wickedness. He's going to be trying to keep you from the beast that's inside your chest and the twistedness that's in your brain. He's going to be helping you all along because you've already gone through the first resurrection. You are living in Christ now. And He wants to use you in your community. He wants to take you to your school. He wants to take you to your job, back to your families, into your marriage. He wants to take you as a parent. He wants to take you as a neighbor He wants to take you into those places and say, I work for Jesus. I'm not saying that because I'm prideful. I'm saying that because I was wicked, but he saved me. And I need to tell you about the goodness of Jesus. I want to show you that through the way I love you, the way I serve you, the way I talk to you, the way I think about you. I want want to be a kingdom person. And so we can take Revelation 20 and argue about it. I don't think that's what it's for. I think the reason gave that perspective, uh, Jesus gave that perspective was again to cause us to say, you know what, let's live now. Jesus said in John chapter 10, I have come to give life and to give life abundantly. He doesn't want you to be saved now and be like, man, life still stinks. Certainly life is hard. But he wants you to live with his joy. And he wants you to live in obedience because that's where you find joy. And he doesn't want you to get enticed by sin because he knows that leads to death. He wants you to live in honesty. He wants you to live not just for your own personal gratification. He wants you to live for the king. He wants you to live for him. And so this morning may have been theologically mind-numbingly boring. But do you know what it is to God? love. It's again the announcement of the gospel saying, I love you so much. Even though if you don't understand it, I don't want you to perish. I want you to understand that I have paid for your sin. I've rescued you. And Satan's done for. His system done for. All deception done for. What I love is in the chapters to come, this is the best part of Revelation. It's the bookend where it's like, it gives us the great picture of what it looks like to have Satan, sin, and death completely gone. No more pain, no more sorrow, no more crying, no more death. And he's going to give us some absolutely mind-blowing pictures of what that eternity with him looks like. It's even hard to just imagine. But it starts with the gospel, and we have it again in Revelation 20. We're going to close out in a song, and I don't know how the Lord maybe penetrated your heart today, with the Word of God. Maybe it's the first time you really realize how much God loves you. Maybe you've been hearing it so much, but you've been putting it off, or maybe just only giving Him a portion. But in reality, what God's asking you and me to do is like, hey, brothers and sisters, I gave you my all. So trust me with everything that you have. And if there's anything in your life that you're saying, you know what? I'm holding this back before Jesus. The Lord would love nothing better than for you to draw near to Him in this moment.
and to say, here it is. Here's my sin. I want to live kingdom life now. I want to live for the king. I want to reign right now. I want to steward this life that he's given me the best. I want to obey. Come give him your life. And, you know, the reality is that's going to be a day-by-day process. Every day you're going to give him your life again and give him your life again and give him your life again. But today you've got to give him your life again. Come to the Lord and tell him how much you appreciate that he's done for you. Hallelujah. The Lord he brought.